0: As I mentioned earlier this morning, we're going to begin a series through the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Mark. If you don't have a Bible, we want to make sure you have one, so if you slip your hand up, we'll bring one to you. Um, if you don't own a Bible, let us know, we'll, we'll send you home with a Bible, but we want to make sure that you are there uh, with us. Um, if you had to answer the question... What is Christianity? How do you go about answering that question? Or a little bit more difficultly, if somebody asked you, give me what Christianity is, but give it to me in a nutshell. You know, you don't have an hour to explain it to me. You've got seconds, or you've got a couple of sentences to explain it to me in short fashion. Somebody asked me recently on a on a call uh, to explain to them this a difficult concept that I was that I was that we were talking about, and they said, "Okay, okay, okay, tell it to me in one sentence, like you were going to say it to your grandma." Uh, what I wanted to say was, "My grandma doesn't really care about this topic, man," <laughs> uh, but I get the idea. We often appreciate a brief bare bones basic foundational explanation of things not that we don't care about details but just give me the basics first and then we can move into details a little bit later some of you may have a favorite movie and you ask your friend if they've seen this movie and they go no I've never seen this movie and when you can finally recover from the fact that they've not seen your favorite movie you invite them over to your house to see this favorite movie but you're such a fan You're such a rabid fan that you don't have the normal edition. You've got the extended edition. You've got the director's cut. You've got the extra special 50th anniversary version of it. It's four hours long. And so you put the DVD in and you tell them, you know, make sure you don't have any appointments, turn your phone off. I'm owning you for the next four hours because you're going to watch this movie. And then it's inundating for them because it's nobody cares what the hobbits had for breakfast. They don't care. You know, we care because we're nerds. You might have a favorite novel, you might have a favorite book. And you say, you, You've not read this book, and they're, but they're not much of a reader. And your introduction to them of this book is the full unabridged version mistake. Find them an abridged version. I've read a few books on Wikipedia. I'm like, I get it. And then I don't read the book. I get it. Just the bare bones, basic facts. To start with the gospel of mark answers what is christianity in a time when christianity was growing it was hot people were becoming disciples getting killed for it getting persecuted for it and it didn't matter if you torture them saw them in half pulled them apart with ropes fed them to lions they're still giving their lives to christ and being baptized they're hiding in the catacombs they're they're spreading out into other areas and winning people from other religions what is going on? So Mark pens this gospel, and it's the shortest gospel. When you read it, you will see, wait a minute, what happened to the details? No, no, no. Jesus went here, he went, did that, he did this, healed a guy, cast out a demon, he went here, the cross, the suffering. Just really short, it's terse, pithy, punchy, it's quick, it's brief, but to the point. Not because the details don't matter. He's letting Matthew and Luke and John take care of unpacking more of those details. Mark just wants to get straight to the point. Mark wants to do a flyover. Whew. Real quick. So you can see the, uh, the flow of the book. So you can see what Christianity is about without getting too bogged down into the details of what the temple looked like and what were the details and how did they respond to that question he just wants to go quickly through it so we can get a quick, brief grasp on what the Christianity what Christianity is about. Now, ironically, we're not going to go through it fast. We're going to go through it slow. So we're going to be in Mark for a while. We won't be in Mark as long as we were in Matthew back when we did that because Matthew was much longer. But Mark, as brief as he wants to be, he's still got 16 chapters. And he still has some things that even though it's four verses long, it takes some time to unpack. Um, uh, So a couple points to help us understand what's going on with the Gospel of Mark before we dive in. And today we're only going to look at one verse. The next Sunday we're going to look at his introduction. And then the Sunday after that we're going to start his action-packed. Scholars describe this Gospel as action-oriented. I'm saying action-packed. This is the action movies of the Gospels. Right? And some of you like movies with a lot of dialogue and you want to get into the feelings and where did the person come from and how did they grow up, what was their dad like. And then some other of us just want to see, get to the action. Right? Let's just get to the cops and the robbers and the shooting and the, and the duel at high noon. Let's just get there. Mark is the action movie guy and he wants to just get there. Right, But Mark, uh, tradition has it, early tradition has it, That Mark is John Mark that we read about in some of Paul's epistles. We read about him in Acts. We read about him in, um, I'm drawing a blank. It's another book, I think Hebrews, maybe. Uh, But Acts, Paul's epistles, they mention this this man who accompanied Peter and the apostles. Uh, You remember Paul and Barnabas fought about this guy, John Mark. He was with us and then he left. So Paul was like, I'm not bringing him on the second time. And Barnabas said, he's a good guy. Let's bring him. And so Paul and Barnabas split up because Paul didn't want to bring John Mark, and Barnabas wanted to bring John Mark. But then later they reconcile, and we see later evidence that Paul and and John Mark are together, ministering together, uh, so it's all good. John Mark, tradition has it, early tradition, I'm talking about in the 100s, we have evidence that John Mark wrote his gospel not as a witness, not following Jesus around, not as one of the 12, but spending time with Peter, who was. Peter did not pen his own gospel, even though there is a false gospel out there called the gospel of Peter. You don't have to be a scholar. Just go out there and read it, and you'll be like, this is crazy. It's, it's crazy. It's insane. You can immediately tell it's not, it doesn't have that ring of genuine authorship. But Mark spent time with Peter, and Peter's telling him, here's what we did. Right? And Peter's that action-oriented disciple, isn't he? Right? He's lopping ears off. He's like, come walk on the water. They're all scared to death, and he's, he's getting out of the boat. Right? He's an action-oriented guy. So you can see Peter's thumbprints on the gospel of Mark. So when Mark walks us through the life of Jesus, it may not only be through the eyes of Peter, but it's that close witness. And we see what was said, what was taught, what happened Why did he have these exchanges with the Pharisees? And what did Jesus focus on when he came to announce what Christianity is supposed to be? What the faith is supposed to be? What are the basics? What is it essentially about? That's what John Mark brings us with the Gospel of Mark. So let's turn there. If you kind of know your way around the Bible, you've got an Old Testament and a New Testament. 36 books and 27 books in the New. The 27 books in the New start with Matthew, and then you get Mark. It doesn't start with Matthew because Matthew was written first. Most scholars believe Mark was written first, and the other guys borrowed from Mark and expanded. In fact, Mark gets passed up a lot because a lot of what you have in Mark is already in Matthew. So some people think, well, why am I going to read Mark? I want the extended edition. Yeah, but sometimes it's nice to back up and just get the abridged edition, to get the basics first, and then we can dive into the other ones for detail. So we're going to go straight to Mark. And look at chapter 1, verse 1. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. And as I had already given you the heads up for, we're not gonna get past verse 1 today. We're gonna hang out in verse 1. Why? Because I wanna give you the background that's necessary to enjoy what Mark is about as we go through the pages. But it's not a random first sentence. Uh, many people will tell you the most important sentence in a book is the first sentence. That's why we remember so many of them. They call me Ishmael. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. I've never even read that book. I know the first sentence. It's famous because it opens up the book in a powerful way. So Mark opens it up like this. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. What am I going to write about? What are you going to read about? What are you going to learn about when you go through 16 chapters of the gospel according to Mark? Well, he's telling you, here's his headline. Some say this is like his title. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And I think that does function as a title. When this was originally written, it didn't say the gospel according to Mark at the top. It was written kind of anonymously. We know through church tradition that it was John Mark. I can't tell you, thus saith the Lord, it was John Mark. Early sources tell us of John Mark, but it didn't say it. His title really was verse 1. Right? The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now here's what's weird. We call it the gospel of Mark, and he's calling it the gospel of Jesus Christ. What is the deal? Whose gospel is it? Right? So they're using the word gospel a little bit differently. When we use the word the gospel of Matthew, the gospel according to Luke, the gospel according to John... We're using the word gospel like a a kind of book. We know that when we say it's a gospel, that it's going to be about Jesus, Jesus' ministry, and what Jesus taught Christianity was. That's what we mean by a gospel as a book. But he doesn't mean the word gospel that way. He means it the way the word was originally meant. That it's a message about Christ. That it's what Christ proclaimed. We'll get to that in a minute. I want to focus on how he opens it. The beginning. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The writing of this book is very Jewish. He's writing mainly, primarily to an audience that's a Jewish audience. And they would have memorized books of the Old Testament. And you don't have to be an ancient Jew to get a flashback when you hear a book open with the beginning. In the beginning. John opens his gospel the same way. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And then what does John talk about? Creation. That Word created everything. What is he echoing? What is is your mind going back to when it opens that way? Genesis 1. In the beginning, God. So he wants your mind to go back there. In order to understand Christianity, the message of Christianity, you have to understand the world. If you don't understand the world the right way, Christianity doesn't make any sense. What was the world? Well, the world was created. It didn't just pop into existence out of nowhere. It didn't explode into existence because molecules were just there. It was spoken into existence, right? Out of nothing, ex nihilo. God spoke it, and it was there. That's what happened in the beginning. And when Genesis opens up with the, with the beginning of the world, with the beginning of humanity... It emphasizes how good it was. Right? Christians believe the world was created good. And then when he created uh, man and woman and male and female, he created that union, then he looked and it was very good. Now today, you'll hear atheists debate on a platform with a Christian and say that one of their main arguments will be, you think the world is good? Look around you. God is not good. Look at all the storms and look at all the floods and look at all the diseases and look at all the senseless deaths. Good people die young, bad people live long. It doesn't make any sense. Well, it wasn't always like that. Christians believe God didn't create that into, put that into existence. He created a very different world than what we see around us today. And sometimes we pass by by that too quickly in Genesis, and we jump straight to the fall and Satan and all that stuff going on. But if you just linger in those opening chapters, and he creates vegetation, and he creates the waters teeming with swimming creatures, and he creates the birds of the air and the animals, and Adam is naming them, and he gives them the job to work and to have dominion, And to be fruitful. And to multiply. And he sees his wife. And Adam is just bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And it's a beautiful marriage. And it's pure. That's how it starts. So in the beginning, things were good. In the beginning, God created things very good. Well, Then why is the world like this? Adam had many jobs to do, name animals, have dominion, be fruitful and multiply, but ultimately he had one job to do, and that one job was to obey, obey God, follow God, and there was only one way to disobey. We find it difficult now, right? We're like, there's so many ways to disobey. I can't do this, and I can't do that, and I can't do this, and I can't go here, and I can't think that, and I can't feel that. He just had one tree to not eat from. It wasn't a bunch of laws It was one law. There's one tree such that if you want to rebel against me, if you want to go your own way, if you want to be your own man, you can do that. I'm giving you the option to do that, but I'm not going to tempt you at every pass with millions of different ways to do it. There's one tree in the middle there. Don't touch it. Don't eat it. Don't eat it. Satan's lie was don't touch it. So the serpent comes in the garden, starts with Eve, deceives her, Paul tell us, tells us, she was deceived, and the hint, the jab there was, Adam wasn't deceived, like he knew what he was doing in a way that Eve didn't, not that Eve didn't sin, but Adam was standing right there, he knew the covenant, he knew the deal, and he took the fruit and bit it, and he didn't bit it, bite it because it looked yummy, he didn't bite it because he was tricked. He he bit that fruit because he thought it would be a good idea to elevate himself like God. God knows good and evil. I want to know good and evil. And that's how Satan fell. I want that. I don't want a leader. I want to lead myself. And that is at the heart of every sin. Every sin that we commit starts there. That's what I want. This is what the world doesn't understand. They're trying to understand you know, uh, they're trying to interpret dreams, and they're putting you on the couch, and they're trying to tell tell me about your feelings about your mom, and, you know, let's try to put the pieces together. They're not, they're bypassing what scripture tells us. They're starting, your typical secular psychologist starts with the idea that man is basically good, and it's our environment. Our environment conditions us to be bad. Pavlov's dogs Right? You hear the little bell, and you've been conditioned to respond to that bell. But if it weren't for that environmental setup, you wouldn't be all that bad. And so it's hard for them to help a person when they're skipping the problem. Christianity has a very specific view of what our problem is. And our problem is not the environment. Our problem is not our upbringing. Our problem isn't the dreams we have at night. Our problem is we're sinners. And like Adam... We desire to be in charge. We don't want someone in charge of us. We want to be king. We don't want a king. That's the issue. That's the problem. So the world starts out good. The world starts out very good. And then there's bad news. The bad news is in our representative, Adam, we fell. And we can't say, well, that was Adam. Not my problem. No, that is our problem. We're born with that same bent, that desire, that instinct To not serve God, to serve ourselves, to put ourselves before everybody else, including God himself. That's the the bent that we're born with that we need to be rescued from. Now that is the, the biblical understanding of the world. That's what the world is like. All of the conversations that we can have with people can't really go anywhere if we don't get down to that basic truth about life. So he opens saying, the beginning. You remember the beginning. There was a beautiful beginning. There was an awesome beginning. There was a great beginning. And that beginning was tainted. And we fell from it. And it wasn't good anymore. Now there's a beginning of something else. Now this is the beginning of the gospel. Now this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is like light, dawn, breaking into the night. This is what we've been waiting for. This is what we've been hoping for. This is the answer. Not a political party, not a political king, not a new kind of government, not a new invention, not more education, but a person. And that person himself, Jesus Christ, he's the gospel. Now, what is a gospel? Not gospel as in a gospel according to Mark or a gospel according to Matthew, but what do they mean when they say gospel? The word gospel comes from the Greek word euangelion, and I normally don't give you Greek words, but this is prevalent even to our little Facebook disputes, okay? Euangelion is the word from which we get evangelical. Now, I've got brothers that are pastors now, friends, that don't want to use the word evangelical anymore. There was a time in this church where the name evangelical was in the name of the church. And we changed it. Not because we don't agree with evangelicalism or what evangel means, but because it's so confusing to people. And now more than ever, people think evangelical means that you vote for a certain guy or that evangelical means you're a part of a particular political party or that evangelical means if you say you're evangelical, the first thing they're going to think is what you think about refugees. What you think about kneeling at the Star-Spangled Banner. That's what they're thinking when they think evangelical. And so I've got pastors, friends that just want to go, you know what? I don't even want to call myself evangelical anymore. What even is it anymore? And I want to say, let's not lose the phrase. Let's rescue the phrase for what it means. Evangelical comes from the word evangel. Evangel comes from the word euangelion, which means good news. It's gospel. The word gospel is the word evangel. If somebody says they're evangelical, what they're supposed to mean is that I'm gospel-able. <laughs> But you see why we say evangelical, because that is a real tongue twister, right? I'm a gospel person. That's what evangelical is supposed to mean. It's not about politics or opinions on different matters. That matter, those, we should have those discussions and have those conversations. In this room, we have people on different sides of different issues. But what unites us? What unites us is the evangel, and the evangel means good news. That's what the Greek word means. So if you were reading Mark's gospel back then, you read Greek, and you're reading his gospel, you would read the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ. So let's not let the word gospel become this Christianese term that nobody gets anymore. And let's not lose it. Let's not lose the word gospel or the word evangel to politics and debates, and let's not go, eh, never mind, I'm not an evangelical like that guy. Rescue the term and remind people what it means and what it's supposed to mean. The evangel is the good news of Jesus Christ. Why do we need good news? Because the beginning reminds us of the bad news. It's hard to think about Genesis without eventually thinking about how we fell from what was good. It was good, but it's not good now. And we agree with the atheists. Yeah, we look around. We're not dumb. We look around and we see disease. We lose loved ones too. We get cancer too. We get in car accidents as well. We're not immune from it. Nobody up here is claiming that you become a Christian and everything goes well for you. We're not claiming that. There are churches that claim that, but they're on the fringe. But to be evangelical, to to embrace the evangel, is not to say that everything around us is good. It's the opposite. We're the first to look around and say everything is bad. What's the solution to the bad stuff? What is the solution to the problem that we have? The problem that we have ultimately is sin. And the only thing that can rescue us from sin is the good news of a coming one who can be the savior in that situation. So when he says, I'm going to write you the account of what Christianity is, you're not going to find anything in here about which political party to belong to what to do with refugees, what to do about the Singapore method in your kid's school, what to do about homeschooling, what to do about you know, any number of issues that come up in our day-to-day conversations. Well, then is it relevant? Is it irrelevant? What do we find in here? You're going to find Jesus in here. You're going to get to know him and what he proclaimed and what he explained Christianity to be. So when he says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, it's easy to pass up that second half of the phrase because it's more Christianese, ain't it? Jesus, Christ, Son of God. What, are those, what does Christ even mean? What does Jesus mean? Right? So I'm going to unpack a little bit of Christianese for you, right? so that it doesn't just fall on dull ears, but we can kind of listen to it in a fresh way and understand where Mark is going with this, and why it's so important that we camp out here for the length of time that we're going to be in Mark. The beginning of the good news of Jesus. Jesus is an iteration of the Old Testament name Joshua. Yeshua. Jesus is Joshua. It's the same name. Different language. Joshua always meant, Yeshua always meant, God is salvation. Next time you close in prayer, in Jesus' name we pray. Think in the God is salvation name we pray. This one that we're praying in the name of is salvation. The only reason why I can even pray and thank you for this meal that I'm about to have is because your name is Jesus, because you are salvation itself. You saved me and rescued me and you continue to provide for me. Jesus means God is salvation. That's what it means. In the beginning, or the beginning of the good news of this man whose name is God is salvation, he is the Christ. What's Christ mean? Christ refers to the term Messiah. It's the New Testament word for the Old Testament word Messiah. The Mashiach. That was talked about numerous times. What does that mean? Messiah means anointed. Or to anoint. Or the anointed one. Three offices were anointed in the Old Testament. The prophets were anointed. The priests were anointed. The king was anointed. Well, which one is he? Yes. Jesus is the ultimate prophet who proclaims God's word truthfully. He is himself, grace and truth. He doesn't get his message, derive his message. He is the message, making him the ultimate prophet. He's the ultimate priest, because Moses went inside the tent and came out and secured stuff for the people of God, but then Moses, it wasn't even that he died. He couldn't even go into the land with them. Why? Because Moses disobeyed. What about if we had a priest who, who made it to the end, and didn't strike a rock in anger. He's still going to die, and he still has his own sins to atone for. So he can't be a perfect priest. But Jesus is the perfect priest. He's the perfect high priest, and his sacrifice and his mediation is once for all. He doesn't have to keep doing it. It's once for all, the author of Hebrews tells us. But in the Old Testament, the word Messiah, the anointed one, it applied to prophets and applied to police Priests, but eventually became specifically focused on the king. And you read through the Old Testament, and it's pretty sad. They, they wanted kings. God says, eh, kings are going to be a problem for you. Just let me be your king. No, we want kings like everybody else. Okay, fine. But it's going to be a problem. So we start the kings. You're not a generation into it. When it's a mess, and God has to send his prophet to to rebuke uh, Saul at uh, various uh, points. David's looking pretty good. He selects a man after God's own heart. He ends up committing adultery, murdering to cover up his adultery, accrues multiple wives for himself, raises up a kid who, despite all the wisdom God gave him, can't turn himself away from the temptation to multiply wives and concubines and make a mess of things and you go through first kings second kings first and second chronicles that there are no good kings there are better kings than other kings some kings look pretty good next to some really wicked kings but even those really good kings they're really not good but then Jesus comes in the line of david in that Messiah line, and fulfills the promise that was given to David, that one would come and reign in the house of David forever. And that's him. And so we need to tap into that long expectation that the Jews had studying the Old Testament, that "Mm, not this Messiah, mm, not that Messiah, meaning this anointed king, that anointed king, not that guy, "Mm, fail. And then 400 years of nothing between the close of the Old Testament and the opening of the New Testament. 400 years of silence, man. There's no... Prophets aren't preaching anymore. What happened to Hosea and these guys? 400 years. Four centuries of of God just going silent. Then you get this weird old John in the desert baptizing people, eating locusts. We'll talk about that a little bit next week. People go out to see him. What's going on? And he's like, whoa, not me not about me. It's about verse 1. This is not the good news of John the Baptist. This is the good news of Jesus. No one else can claim that name, God is salvation. Right? No one else can claim to be the Messiah, the promised one. And then to cap it off, comma, the Son of God, in case you're wondering, okay? In case these terms are just too enigmatic, the Son of God, okay? He is God. He is the one. He is designated. And actually next week we'll unpack a little bit more about how the Son of God sets up this whole first half of chapter 1. Now, I want to make this point to you. Imagine the situation that Mark is writing this into. So we're going to do two steps before we close in a couple minutes. One, what's Mark basically going to be about? And two, who is he writing to so we can understand why he did that? All right, so first... What is he basically going to be about? Jesus did a lot of things. Even John ends and he's like, "Look, I'm done, guys. I'm out of, you know, there's not enough ink in the world to put the stuff in here. I just wrote this. That's in here so you can believe." Well, John wrote way more than Mark. Mark is like bringing it real streamlined and lean. So why is he selecting the stories he's selecting? If he's sitting with Peter and he's going, "Peter, come on, I'm writing this gospel. Tell me, tell me what happened. Tell me what happened." And Peter's just getting right to the point. Maybe Peter didn't like talking very long, so he just, that's how it's so short. He's just, yeah, this, it was a boat, it was a storm, and he said, shh, and it was next story. Whoa, 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 what kind of storm was it? No, next, I'm done with that one. I don't know. But it's really short like that, okay? So he's being really Selective. If you have a big book and you do an abridged version of it, you can't just choose passages anywhere you want. You have to try to decide what is the core, the essence of it. And what Mark is hitting with his stories, the healing of the blind people and the walking on the water and the calming of the storm and the debates with the Pharisees and the casting out of demons, all these little snippets that Mark gives us is portraying not just a Jesus, that he wants us to see, but the kind of disciples that were in contrast with that Jesus. We're going to ad nauseum see this little interchange between Jesus and the disciples where Jesus shows himself as the Christ and they don't get it. And he talks about the need for him to suffer and they don't understand it. And he tries to communicate to them that he's the son of God and they're surprised. And he explains a parable to the people, and in private they ask him, we're completely confused. And there's little hints of Jesus like, come on, guys. So we see cycles of what Jesus is about, mainly his suffering. They're all good with the king part. Yes, the good news of this king that comes, let us take over. I'm sick of Rome. Rome. Right? Let's get Caesar out of there, man. That, that dude is nuts. Jesus, let's go. Your salvation, right? You're saving us from Rome. I'm not saving you from Rome. I'm saving you from why Rome is a problem. Right? The sin issue. So he focuses their attention on the cross, on the need for his suffering. And then Mark focuses their attention on the fact that they don't get it. They're confused by it. So he recruits to himself disciples that don't understand the power of the cross. They don't understand the glory of suffering. They just want glory like anyone else would want it. And Jesus is stripping them of it, breaking them down of that. He's trying to communicate to them that the cross needs to be central to your life if you're going to be a disciple. More Christianese, what is the disciple? A student, a follower. So if you're going to be a follower of me, Jesus communicates You need to understand the centrality of suffering in the cross, the suffering servant that I've come to be. If you don't get that as your core, you can't be a disciple. And what we get is a picture of disciples that are, it'd be harsh to call them, you know, bumbling idiots. They're not idiots, but they're confused. They're perplexed. They don't understand what he's doing. They think the agenda is this, and Jesus keeps tearing it off and putting the agenda over here. And for the entire length of the gospel, they don't get it. Now, who is Mark writing to? Mark is writing at a time where Peter, and now Paul, and you've got these apostles, they're apostles now, right? They started the church. We have a tradition that Thomas, we like to make fun of Thomas, right? Oh, he always wanted proof and stuff. Yeah, but once he got it, he he converted India, right? What did I do? So you've got these guys, and they're they're reaching a mega status. You remember when Paul's writing to the Corinthians, he's like, hey, I'm getting reports that you guys are divided over who to follow. Some of you say, I follow Peter, and they've got all the Peter t-shirts and the Peter coffee mugs. And then you've got guys who are like I, I follow Paul, and they've got the Paul hats, you know, and the Paul pendants on their chains. And other guys are like, Oh, I'm gonna one up all of you. I follow Christ. I'm like, "Well, yeah, well yeah, but that doesn't count." I mean, we're talking about so they're debating. What does Paul tell them? It's not about Peter or Apollos or Paul or the styles in which we preach. It's about the cross. The power of the cross. The the power in any sermon is in the cross. There is no other power except for that. If you try to counsel somebody and make their life better, you will not make their life better. Their life will not improve if that counsel that you gave them is not based on the cross. That is the center of Christianity. So, Mark is writing to an audience where you've got these mega apostles that everyone is chasing around and wearing their t-shirts and arguing about. Maybe not everyone, but definitely in Corinth. And then when he sits next to Peter and says, Peter, tell me how it started. I mean, you're out there, you're speaking in different languages, or people are hearing your sermons in different languages. Your shadow touches somebody, Peter, and they pop up. The paralyzed dude just starts walking and starts jumping around like Isaiah promised. Peter, you're fulfilling Isaiah right before our eyes. That's amazing. Tell us how it started. Will you tell us how it began? Will you tell us what it was like when you sat at Jesus' feet and heard his lessons? And Peter goes, yeah, but I'm going to be really brief. We were pretty terrible. Why were you terrible? What did you mean? We didn't get the cross. And so we were bumbling about, trying to figure out what Jesus was about, and it wasn't until he ascended and gave us the Holy Spirit that the light bulb came on, and now we get it. We're not powerful because we're educated. We're not powerful because of our speaking skills. We're powerful because the Holy Spirit has unveiled to us the power of the cross. And it's the cross that we proclaim to the death. I'm not bold. I'm a scaredy cat. Right? but because the Spirit empowers me to proclaim the good news of the cross of Jesus Christ. There's power there. But back then, I didn't understand it. What do you mean? Let me tell you. He walked on water. I was confused. He calmed the waters. I was confused. He rebuked the Pharisees, and right when I thought we were just going to take over, kick the Pharisees out and, and, and enjoy the temple, he would walk away. He would have a moment where he would completely show exactly who he is, a son of God, and then he would tell everybody, shh, don't tell anybody that happened. Don't tell anybody what happened. That was so awesome. No, no, no. It's not time yet. Why isn't it time yet? You need to get the cross first. You don't get to skip to glory, and neither does the son of God. We want to be a real follower of Jesus Christ. We don't get to skip the cross. He didn't. That's why Jesus says, come and follow me and pick up your empty tomb. No, pick up your cross and follow me. You'll have the empty tomb experience. That's what enables us to to follow him. Right? We're resurrected and we're reborn. But right now, it's a life of sacrifice. It's a life of sometimes suffering. And sometimes God allows more suffering in our lives than others. But we'll always get heat for the gospel. No one's going to just straight up enjoy it. Why do we do it? Why have Christians done it throughout the centuries, even to the death, proclaim the cross? Because they get that's what discipleship is. So, as we walk through Mark, and he puts two things next to each other Christ teaching about the cross, its importance, and discipleship. Mark keeps taking the cross and applying it to discipleship. Applying it. We're not going to get five steps to a better marriage. We're not going to get three tips on tucking your kid in at night. Are those things important? Yes. But they're meaningless if we don't have what's central to Christianity. And what's central to Christianity is the good news that God is salvation himself has come to suffer on the cross, to release us from our slavery to sin. Not free us from any kind of suffering or hardship, but to endure that hardship because he secured for us the salvation that counts. Then we get to look forward to the time where he comes, and like the song that we opened up with this morning, now he's going to come as the king and take over. Are we ready for that? Are we getting our kids ready for that? The only way to be ready for that is to reckon with the cross, that I should die for my sin, but Jesus died for my sin, so I can now follow him and he can rescue me. That is the good news. Let's pray.